The first dancing woman stepped out her house around noon, twitching and swaying under the sweltering summer heat of what is now modern-day France. She twirled up and down the streets of Strasbourg until her feet bled. Then another woman joined her. Then another. One by one, residents of the 16th century Roman town danced for days and nights, forming a frenzied, sweaty mob reported to have reached 400 people. A poem from the city archives describes how, in their madness, people kept up their dancing until they fell unconscious and many died. Horrified, local counselors tried everything. They hired musicians so those afflicted could dance the disease away. When that failed, they banned music. Others led the swaying sick to a saint statue in a nearby town. Nothing worked. Then, just as suddenly as it had started, the dancing stopped. Human history has been filled with plagues, but few are as odd as a dancing epidemic of 1518. All recorded observer accounts note these people did not want to dance, but had no control over their own bodies. So what caused this disease? It was not the sizzling brains or the holy wrath of God, as doctors at the time thought, but most likely mass hysteria or the consumption of contaminated food with a species of mold that grows in damp rye and creates similar effects to LSD. The COVID-19 epidemic appeared just as suddenly as the dancing plague, but thanks to germ theory and data science, we know we cannot dance the disease away. In less than a year, vaccines have been developed and distributed, and in many countries, inoculation programs are firmly underway. I'm Rosario Lebrija Rasvetayev, your host for Founding Conversation, a podcast brought to you by the PICTEC Group, sharing ideas and insights for understanding and improving the modern world. If you like our episodes, please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. The Economist estimates COVID-19 has already claimed over 10 million lives, and data shows we need mass vaccination in the poorest and richest countries alike to avoid mutating variants. So how can we make sure vaccines are supplied equitably around the world? And what can we do to stop new variants from taking over the world? In this episode, Stefan Bancel, CEO of Moderna, a young Boston-based biotech firm that pioneered a vaccine, speaks to PICTED senior managing partner, Renault de Planta, about the race to vaccinate the world. So um, over the next 40 minutes, we'll talk about, there's so much to talk about. We'll talk about four main topics. First, the race for vaccination, what lies behind the messenger RNA technology, how safe, how effective is it, particularly against the emerging variants. Second topic, the formidable logistic and manufacturing challenges which had to be overcome and, and how was that possible and how was it possible to achieve so much so quickly. And, you know, the question is whether there are broader management lessons that we can learn from this success. Third topic, uh, what else can mRNA and Moderna in particular offer in the coming months and years to cure other diseases? 
And fourth, Moderna as a company, how does one transform a young startup into a company approaching $20 billion of top-line sales in just two years? What made the difference and what are today's challenges? So, Stefan, first, congratulations for what you and your colleagues have achieved, not just for your firm, Moderna, not just for your employees and for your investors, but for society at large. Your success is an inspiration to many. Now, let's dive directly into our first discussion topic, namely the specifics of this vaccine. A lot of clients are asking us, how safe is it really? Why is it safer than traditional vaccines? And how long does the immunity last? Let's start with those questions. Well, thanks, Renaud. So the technology so far has been shown to be very safe and very well tolerated. We actually reported following you know, the AstraZeneca questions and the J&J questions recently on blood clotting that over 65 million people that have been dosed so far, there has been no clotting event with our technology that has been observed. And when you think about it, the messenger RNA is a molecule that is in your body. You have around 8,000 mRNA molecules in every one of your cells. The mRNA we make and we inject in you is gone 48 hours after injection. And the lipid, what we put, the fat we put around it, has a few hours half-life. So same, degraded very quickly. It's biodegradable. And so all those pieces makes the technology actually extremely safe versus older technologies where sometimes, you know, they had adjuvant and chemicals to boost your immune system that are not so good for your body. And uh, how quickly can you adapt this vaccine to these ever-changing variants as they become more virulent and more lethal, how quickly can you actually, in this race of, you know, cat and mouse, how quickly can you actually uh, fight back? What we've done for the South Africa variant, for which we have a vaccine in the clinic as a booster vaccine, uh, it took us 30 days to go from the sequence of that variant to getting the drug into the clinic. We are trying for this first time chasing a variant because we didn't have in the business plan of this year to chase variants. So that's something we just had to add on top of. We are hoping to get this approved by the regulators around the world uh, in late summer so that it can be used to protect people in the fall winter so we don't have the same awful winter that we had uh, the last winter. And the other piece too is I, I want to then reduce the time. So our goal is to be able to go in 100 days from a new variant to an authorized vaccine and just build it as a muscle of a company so we can go very fast. I don't think we're done with variants. I think the virus is going to still evolve a lot. And I want Moderna to be able to go very quickly after those and to also combine them. One of the another amazing things about the technology is we can put several, we've already done up to six, mRNA molecules in the same vial. And so if you need, you know, there is Brazil 2.0 is an issue or uh, South Africa 3.0, you can make those new ones and then combine with the existing boost and just keep chasing the variant until this is fully under control. And from what we know today, the existing vaccine, how long does the immunity last and how effective is it with the existing known variants like P1 from Brazil? Yes, yeah, so in terms of lasting immunity, it really re depends which virus you get infected with. So let's assume you get infected with the original strain, uh, let's call it the Wuhan strain for now, uh, of a virus. We believe, based on the current decay curve, that you should have at least a year to two years of protection. What I think will depend is your age and your comorbidity factors, and also how much infection you get when you get infected. 
it's very different to get a couple copy of a virus because you should spend four hours with somebody in the same room that is infected and you're going to be breathing a lot of air virus. On the variants, what we know so far is for the British variant, there is zero impact on the vaccine. There's a little bit of antibodies going down with the P1 Brazil and 351 South Africa, but still the antibody is very high. And so if you were to get our vaccine, because, you know, in Switzerland and many countries, the vaccine is authorized. If you get our vaccine and you get, let's say, the South Africa infection tomorrow, you will most probably have no disease because you got injected in the last few months. What is unknowable today, Renault, is what happens next winter to a 75-year-old who got the South Africa of a P1 strain. They might get disease, and it's very hard to uh, estimate what we know today. If they get severe disease, they will need to be hospitalized, which is why the boosts are critical. So do you expect us to get an annual booster as a must, given, number one, the you know, immunity decaying, and secondly, the, the variants spreading, you know, ever, ever increasing, in fact. Yes. So actually, yesterday we had our annual vaccine days. And for those of you interested, I invite you to go and look at the presentation. It's online on our website and you find a lot of content. So basically what we said, Orono, is that we believe in 21 and 22, we're going to see a lot of fast variants. I am personally very worried for the next six months because as the southern hemisphere is getting into its fall and winter now, and because in the south, people have much more density in houses than in the north. And also, there's a lot of people that are immunocompromised, like HIV-positive patients. And this is really bad for the virus mutating. And because there's so many people in the south versus the north, just from a density standpoint, I would expect many more variants to come. I was not surprised, given I've done you know virology for 25 years, to see already in Brazil and South Africa, two of the southern hemisphere countries, mutation despite their summer. Those happen in their summer. And so we expect in 21 and 22 a lot of variants mutation. And as more and more people get vaccinated around the world and boosted, the virus will have less and less opportunity to mutate in somebody's body. And so then we expect in a 23 and forward time frame, slowdown of mutation. Our goal at Moderna is to chase, as I said, those quick variants uh, in 21 and 22. And then is to combined with a flu vaccine, the COVID variant of that time. So what we expect in a couple of years is you will need only one shot per year as a boost. You will get high efficacy flu, the right COVID variant in the same dose, and you'll be fine for the winter. So you will get one jab, one booster, including all the variants and the known variants, <laughs> the sequence variants, but also the flu, you told me, the influence right. of flu vaccine embedded in one. Correct. One dose. But listening to you, it sounds like 21-22 are the two years of danger given the proliferation of variants. So how about herd immunity? Because the mass media keep talking about herd immunity, more and more people having natural antibodies plus the vaccine people. But listening to you, it sounds like herd immunity is a longer-term goal. Correct. And I think there are two reasons for this. One is very few people in the world have been vaccinated over 7 billion people. And if you look at the capacity update and the ramp from the manufacturers, the 2021 capacity at the global level is already called for. If I decide today to add with my board, you know, 200 million or 500 million more doses, 
because we are mid-April. It will not happen this year. It might happen in December, but very little impact on this year. And the same for the other manufacturers. The other piece that is driving more concerns now to me in the last few weeks is what happened with the two adenovirus vaccines. Because you've seen yesterday, Denmark, for example, said they don't want to use the AstraZeneca vaccine. And then you have also consumers' perception. So there's a lot of moving pieces right now. And the global manufacturing supply looks very different if you have adenovirus or you don't have them in the next few months. And so I think between the size of the planet, the rep of manufacturing, there is no world in which in 21 the entire planet is vaccinated. And so the virus will still keep evolving. And as we saw in Brazil, as you know, people were infected last year. But because P1 is such a shift from the Wuhan strain, a lot of people are sick right now in Brazil. And we're going to see the same thing, which is why I think in the rich countries, people will be able to get their boost and live a normal life for those who want the vaccine uh, and get their boost. But I think the problem we have as a planet is I think it's going to take another 18 months from where we are to get this thing under control. So did I understand correctly? You think that by the end of this year, in our developed countries, which have access to the most effective vaccine, the mRNA uh, types, we should be okay. We should have a decent Christmas. But for the... Uh, other countries, the emerging world, it's going to take at least one more year. Right? Yes. And the only thing I will add to your statement is we'll have a good winter or Christmas if we get the boost on the market in the summertime, which is our goal, and if people take the boost. So that brings me actually to the next question, which is the logistics. Now, we have seen you know, production being ramped up. We see that in Europe. Now the, the deliveries are increasing fast in April and May, but a lot of countries have not signed up to Moderna or, or Pfizer. So what are the bottlenecks today and how quickly can we actually tackle those bottlenecks to, to mass vaccinate many more countries? The challenge we had for both mRNA companies is that we never had a commercial product before. And so there was not in our big commercial plant of mRNA sitting waiting for this pandemic to happen. So just to give people a perspective, which I think shows the extraordinary work the teams have done. In 2019, for a full year, we made less than 100,000 doses of vaccines. In the first quarter, we shipped more than 100 million doses in the quarter. This year, we're going to be on trajectory to a billion doses. That's a 10,000 times increase. Just go to any manufacturer of cars or phones or anything and tell them, in a year and a half, I need... 10,000 times more product. They will look at you really funny. And that's the, the job that we have to do. We have to buy machines that don't exist on the shelf. You have to order them, to hire people. Raw material has been a big issue. But things are getting, as you say, really good because our team and, and the Pfizer team have done an excellent job surprising everybody that we could move so fast, both companies. I think it speaks also a lot of the technology. It is a very highly scalable technology. Traditional cell culture, which you use in adenoviruses and in protein vaccines, like the Sanofi or the Novavax, those technologies are very hard to scale because you use cells, living cells. In the mRNA manufacturing process, there's no living cells. It's enzymes and water, massively scalable. So by when do you think we'll have enough supply, particularly going back to your previous comment on, on boosters you know, and the need for annual boosters? Yeah. So by when so, are we going to have enough production capacity, both for you and your direct competitor, to, to address the, um, the planet, basically. 
wanted to, we've said that next year, if Moderna starts to only sell boosters because enough people have been primed, we will have 2.8 billion dollars of capacity based on today's manufacturing infrastructure. What we are doing right now is reassessing that with our board, because again, in the last two weeks, I've seen with the AZ challenges and now JNJ this week, a lot of changes. And so we are wondering if we need to add more or not. But as of today, 2.8 for us. I think Pfizer public number is 3 billion. So you cover easy 70% of the planet, knowing there's anti-vaxxer everywhere. Not everybody will get a vaccine. So I think 22 is going to be a very different world in terms of capacity in the amount of space for the planet. For centuries, the Black Death was the most feared disease in Europe. The epidemic killed over 60% of the continent's population. And although we know its speedy spread was due to germs from flea bites living on infected black rats, doctors at the time believed that disease was spread by poisoned air called miasma. Because of this, during the 17th century, plague doctors protected themselves by wearing large coats and masks with long beaks filled with herbs to fight against foul and toxic odors. These sinister figures with their heavy black coat spectacles and long monstrous beaks have now become an iconic staple of the bubonic plague. What motifs will come to represent the COVID-19 pandemic in history? Commercial face masks and antibacterial gel? Now, um, a more business question or a political question maybe. I mean, you are, you are a French citizen. You're very successful now in North America. What has struck many clients and investors is the lack of strong players from Europe in this vaccine game, maybe with one exception, the German BioNTech. What does that say about uh, leadership in the pharma sector today, you know, U- US versus Europe? I think it just shows a few things. First, of a big four oligo company doing vaccines, because it's a big oligopoly, I think only Pfizer had the courage to go and was able to execute well. As you know, Merck had that trouble to first decide to go into the race against the virus and then two vaccine failing. GSK has never got into the race. They just told the world, we'll give you our adjuvant to help you, but they didn't, you know, uh, wanted to destruct their portfolio. And Sanofi, we all know what happened to Sanofi in terms of technical difficulties. But I think it just shows how the incumbent in the pharma industry have been sleeping for a long time. The disruption happening with mRNA is a very profound disruption. For more than 100 years, the pharma industry has been an analog industry where every drug, every vaccine is a different product, which is why it's so slow, why most products fail, why the return on investment capital are so bad in pharma, if you look at any analysis. Well, mRNA, what is it? mRNA is an information molecule. Software is made of zeros and ones, and every software is written with the same zeros and ones. Well, every mRNA we make is with the same four letters because life is written in four letters from plants to fishes to humans. And we cracked this code. We cracked how to make a synthetic mRNA in our factory, inject in your body safely that you can make any protein we want. And so it's just a total transformation, like going from, you know, watching our, our videos on VHS tape, you know, 20 years ago or 30 years ago, and now you download your movie on your iPhone. This type of disruption is happening to pharmaceuticals. Today, people are only thinking about vaccine because that's what they see. But we have product in cancer, in cardiology, in rare disease, in autoimmune disease. This is a total transformation. 
and disruption to the entire pharma industry. So exactly, you are bringing me to my next question, which is what else can mRNA technology offer? And particularly, you know, what other disease do you think Moderna as a company can hope to cure? I know you have a pipeline, you are working on cardiovascular treatments, on, on um, so-called cancer vaccines and other health issues. Can you tell us a bit about what you expect and, and by when? Because some of your the treatments are very promising, particularly in the field of cancer. Yeah, so let me start with vaccines, because I think the world has, has forgotten in the last 20, 30 years the role of vaccines. You know, you know since 1980, there has been 80, 80 new viruses discovered that hurt humans. There is vaccine today against those 80 viruses for free virus. So a lot of people don't realize that they get a lot of disease, including cancer, because of virus infection. There are some very interesting studies, for example, against a virus called CMV, cytomegalovirus, that unfortunately most people on this call don't know. This virus is the number one cause of birth defect. No vaccine on the market. Uh, we have a beautiful vaccine, very close to get to phase three. The data are fantastic. But there is a very interesting study done in Sweden. They're looking at people over 20 years, and they show that people that are CMV positive, meaning that have been infected in their lifetime with no symptom, live around five years less than people that are CMV negative, who never been infected by this virus. And why is that? Because your immune system, instead of fighting cancers in your body, it's fighting the virus. Because once infected by CMV, you will have CMV virus in your body all your life. So we're going to really transform the vaccine business make a lot of combinations so you don't need to get, you know, 50 shots per year and protect you against a lot of disease so you don't get to the hospital and so you don't, uh, you reduce your risk of cancer. Then, indeed, in cancer itself, we have a very interesting new data in things like personal cancer vaccine. What is that? We take a biopsy from your tumor and in 60 days, we make a drug just for your cancer. And this is starting to show very interesting data. We, sh we publish those data in the fall, but nobody cared because everybody was focused on COVID-19. Uh, recently, AstraZeneca, who is partnering with us on another cancer drug, because we have five cancer drugs in the clinic, they've shown some very interesting data. And in cardiology, as you said, uh, we have a drug that is extremely exciting to me, also with AstraZeneca, where we inject in people's heart our drug. It's a one-time intervention injected directly in your heart. It takes 10 minutes after a heart attack. Because if you survive a heart attack, you will die of heart failure because your heart's ability to pump is going to be massively damaged. Where we find a way to use a natural human protein called VEGF, VEGF, to teach your body how to build new blood vessels, like brand new blood vessels, like regenerative medicine inside your own body. So there's a lot of things coming that are extremely exciting in biology and going to disrupt existing market or create new market to improve people's life and to reduce healthcare costs. Exciting. On cancers, I mean, can you give us a few examples of the of what you think will be the most promising treatment for you know which types of cancers? So any type of solid tumor. We truly today do not have drugs in the clinic. We're working in the labs for blood cancer, but solid tumors. We're working on all of those because what we learned, Rono, in the last ten years at the scientific community level is saying I have lung cancer or colon cancer means nothing in science. Because cancer, what we know today, is 100% of the time a disease of your DNA. 
It can be linked to external factors like smoking or UVs on your skin. It could be linked to genetic factors. It could be linked to chemicals. It could be linked to viruses uh, like HPV, which is why we vaccinate our children against HPV. But it's 100% of the time a disease of your DNA, which is why sequencing a tumor in today's world is so important. So you can read the three gigabyte of letters in your DNA of your cancer cell. You can compare that to a healthy cell of your body and know exactly what to do for your cancer at the mechanistic level inside your cells. Where it is in your body is, from a clinical standpoint, irrelevant. And you, you, know, you mentioned cancer, cardiovascular disease, viruses, you know, even way beyond COVID. The one thing you didn't mention was uh, the, the superbugs, the bacteria. You know, many scientists are saying the next big pandemic is you know, all these antibiotics-resistant bacteria. Could mRNA technology offer us a glimpse of hope there as well? So with today's state of the technology, not for vaccines against bacteria, but antibodies, treatments against bacteria, yes. Are you already working on this? Or? We are working on it in a lab. And on the antibody front, we already had antibodies in the clinic showing they can work safely. Uh, so that's something we are partnering with, for example, the NIH to work on indeed those antibiotic resistance bacteria, which is a big, big public health issue. Hand-washing has been key to controlling the spread of diseases for centuries. But it was not always so. In 1846, hundreds of women were dying from puerperal fever after giving birth at the General Hospital in Vienna. This was not uncommon at the time. After all, the disease was commonly called childbed fever. But Hungarian doctor Ignaz Semmelweis noticed it was only women who were tended by male doctors rather than female midwives who developed the disease. He soon realized the male doctors were conducting autopsies right before delivering the babies and hypothesized infected particles from these cadavers were the root cause of the deaths. He asked all delivering doctors to wash their hands with chlorine and it almost immediately childbed fever rates fell dramatically. While Dr. Semmelweis' discovery was revolutionary, the medical community, who felt attacked, rejected it. He lost his job and was later committed to a mental asylum. Maybe now we time to move to Moderna as a company. Uh, you know, from our own early investment, I know that Moderna was was you know, not created as a, a vaccine company. Uh, and now your top line sales, uh, I'm not going to force you to answer that specific question, but, you know, our analysts estimated will be over 20 billion this year. So, you know, from about 60 million two years ago. So transforming a startup with 60 million top line sales, which already is something into 20 billion in two years, basically. I mean, this it has been now exponential. Um, of course, some people are asking how long-lasting is that? Uh, but first, maybe your, your management lessons. What have you learned in that exponential phase of, of development? Well, we were ready for it, Renaud. And the reason we were ready for it is because mRNA is information. We said since the beginning, including to the PICTE team that had the foresight to invest at 100 million <laughs> pre-money valuation, was it's going to be either a broad platform or it's going to go bankrupt. 
the notion that this would be a one or two drug company make zero scientific sense. It was zero or a lot. So of course you don't build a company assuming zero. You stay home or you go to the beach. So our obsession since the beginning was to say, how do we prepare for that moment of scale up? And that moment of course has happened in the last two years. It has happened much faster because of course in none of our five year plan, we had the pandemic as an enabler of a company's growth. So the way I think about it, Renault, is this has accelerated the company being commercial by three to four years, and it has uh, enabled the company to become break-even cash flow-wise by maybe five to 10 years, because of our first product would have taken several years to be able to carry the entire R&D cost of a company and manufacturing and so on. But we're ready for it, and one of the ways we're ready for it is through digitalization. I built the company since the beginning as a massively digital company so it could scale without adding armies of people. Because what I've observed over the years working at Lilly or leading Biomerieux is scaling organization agile culture is very, very hard. As you add people, keeping the culture is really hard. You have layers of people and management and so on. Everything slows down. And so the challenge for me was how do we get modern culture to be able to scale? And the answer is use a lot of technology. Our obsession is if something can be done by a machine, machine don't have it done by a human. So our appetite to invest in, in tech is incredible because we think about the next 10 year returns and all the people we won't have to hire, all the lack of management speed we won't have because of the ability to scale up the enterprise. And so we invested a lot in IT, in lot in robotics, and in the last couple of years, a lot in AI. And the biggest challenge with AI, because everybody says they are doing AI, is around change management. Because it reminded me of what I saw when I started working 25 years ago, which is as an engineer, I would walk into the workplace and using a computer was second nature. I use Excel and know the macro by heart in my sleep. I used to code software as an engineer. But everybody in the workplace that was 40, 50, 60 years old didn't know how to use a computer. My boss used to have his assistant print his email and read his email on paper. And what do we have today in the workforce? The same thing. You have management levels, people who know uh, digital tools, but they don't know AI. They don't understand AI. And when humans don't understand something, they are scared about it. So where do you do. Uh, inject AI? Which part of your value chain? Can you give a, a, one or two examples? Everywhere. We do it in manufacturing. Uh, we're doing it in research. Now we have a new insight on the science of mRNA coming from computers. Because the computer is able to put all the data that we have. You now, since 10 years, we have run more than 4,000 scientific experiments with a lot of different versions of the technology. Even Stephen Hogg, who runs the science with the smartest guy I've ever met in my life, even he doesn't have everything in his head and be able to draw correlation between human data, Mars data, monkey data, with all the different toolbox that we have. Uh, the other piece, too, of course, is in finance, you know? Like account receivable, account payables, you can use a lot in AI. Go, go see the SAP team, and they, are, they have a lot of modules that are AI modules. But again, the challenge is a change management challenge, is how do you get the top 200 people in the organization to become fluent and comfortable with AI? I think it's a big change management program. We're working with Harvard Business School and MIT to help us in that, in terms of technical training, mentoring. But until I have all the key leaders of a company who are engaged in AI and have ideas themselves because they understand it, how to use AI, AI will not become part of the DNA of a company. And I need AI to become part of the DNA of this company. I think there was, a, as you said, the vaccine day yesterday or two days ago, and, and um, 
think you or one of your colleagues said uh, this is only the beginning and you are expecting to multiply the size of Moderna as a company 10 times in the coming years. Are you serious? And, and can you tell us uh, in what way? I mean, what, what are the blockbusters coming up? Sure. So, yes, I'm very serious. I will not tell something to our employees or investors that was not serious. I think the 10x way of thinking has been the most important management tool I've used in the last 10 years. You need to know, I know every day I walk in my office and I open my door and I ask myself, how do we grow 10x from here? And you can ask my team. I drive them crazy. Every meeting I go to, what I do now is I ask, how do we do 10x? And what is remarkable about the human mind is that if you put a time constraint, which is how do we go 2x in the next years, people know it's not possible. So basically, you shut down creativity. But if you put a 10-year time frame and you say, how do we go 10x in 10 years, which, as you know, will be a nice return, people start to relax and think and dream. And so we do that every day in manufacturing, in IT, in science. And another management tool we use a lot is to say, okay, if you had a magic wand, how would amazing Moderna would look like uh, in 10 years' time as a 10x company? And then when you agree on the vision, let's play them with backwards. What needs to happen when, if you are intellectually honest, so that you will track to that vision? That's what we've done the last 10 years. And so it's not new for us. We're just doing that every day. So you, you think big. Now, when you do your retro planning from 10 years to today, what's your biggest challenge? My number one worry now is cultural dilution. We have an amazing technology. We used to have technology risk. I think it's through the window. We used to have financing risk. You know, we are generating cash every quarter in the last two quarters. I, of course, will not comment on Q1 until the results come out in a few weeks. And so the biggest limitation to this 10x vision now is our ability to keep what made Mona special, this ability to take calculated risk, uh, this ability to move really fast, this ability to adapt to data and pivot the company 90 degrees right or left based on data and not taking six months to agonize on how we're going to turn. We just put the data out there, we explain it to people, we answer questions, and then we move. Fantastic. Thank you, Stefan, for your illuminating comments. I think your success and the Moderna story are truly remarkable and inspiring. Very refreshing, particularly in those difficult times that we're all going through um, at the moment. Your story is a vibrant illustration of uh, making the impossible possible. Let, allow me to quote Nelson Mandela here, who once said that it always seems impossible until it's done. And I think you, Stefan, and your team, you've done it. So thank you. And even though there's more to come and it's only the beginning, thank you very much. And thank you for participating um, with, to this uh, PICTA event today, Stefan. We really appreciate that. Thank you. This week's guests on Founding Conversation were Stefan Bansell and Reno de Planta. This series is brought to you by the PICTE Group, one of Europe's leading independent wealth and asset managers, in collaboration with the How To Academy, London's premier public forum for sharing global thought leadership. Executive producers are me, Rosario Lebrija Rasbetayev, and Vasily Cristodulu, with Stephen Barber as our editorial advisor. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.